0: Thanks, Alec. Awesome. Well, good morning. Happy April fifteenth. The cherry blossoms are out. Spring is in the air. The sun is struggling to return to our hemisphere. Life is good. I want to begin a new teaching series, which is kind of the a continuation. If you don't have a note sheet, raise your hand, one of these green ones. It'll help you this morning kind of track where we're going. But um, just while we're waiting for some of the parents to come back, let me make just a couple of announcements. As Alec mentioned, last week, uh, next Sunday, Wade will be continuing our series because this coming weekend, I've been invited to a, a very interesting um, collective in Calgary and uh there's there's kind of a burgeoning movement of young leaders and, and emergent church folks in the country that are uh, that have formed a network called the Blue Porch Network. It's primarily still within the vineyard, although some of the churches are outside the vineyard but it's a network of churches where people are experimenting with doing church and being church and finding ways of of still uh, making disciples, being a community of worship, being a community of mission, but finding different wineskins and, and different forms. And so my role in being invited to this uh, is, uh, as part of the Vineyard National team in, in Canada, I've been asked to be an, a translator. translator is somebody who stands between two languages and translates from one language to the other. And so we have what we call classic churches that kind of... Uh, do church in a traditional way, and then we have these experimental churches, and I've asked uh, to be a translator between the two. And so I invite your prayers for that. Um, I'll be able to spend about a day with my own family from Thursday to Friday in Calgary, and then uh, I've been asked to actually live in community with uh, these churches, ones in the Jesus Loves You Society, a Catholic outreach in downtown Calgary that reaches out to prostitutes and drug addicts, and just live among them and be part of that community as they live the way of Jesus in a a 24-7 way of church. So uh, it's going to be a good weekend. Looking forward to that. I'll be back next Sunday afternoon. Then the following weekend, I'll be away again. So Dean will be teaching, uh, as of course we'll be at the men's retreat. Dean is our token man who will remain and teach. Uh, We should have got a woman for that. I wasn't thinking. I don't know what's going on there, but uh, Dean will continue our teaching series that following Sunday. Um, I I see this, uh, in in a sense, this series that we will continue at least through May as a continuation of our congregational meeting that we had a couple of weeks ago. Uh, We only had about a half an hour and I had planned on sharing some things there and just ran out of time, and I think that in, in wisdom it was better that we hold, because what I want to do is provide some framework, because as a leadership team, as you know, there's been a lot of transition lately, a lot of people coming, a lot of people going, and this is true not only in our church, but in our, at our leadership level, and we've been asking a lot of hard questions about the next 10 years, and what that's going to look like for us as a church. And what I'd like to do is, in conversation with our leadership team and with you, over the next few months in this teaching series, chart the next 10 years. Part of it has to do with my age. I'm getting to my mid-50s. A lot of pastors in the world today are my age, and they're asking similar questions. What is the next 10 years going to look like for me? What are the next 10 years going to look like for my church, for the church that I pastor? How can we give this away? How can we pass the baton? and so it's very important that we be thinking about that the good thing about the next ten years is is that we don't have to be in a hurry but we do need to be intentional and we need to be purposeful about what we're doing and so what I'm going to do today is try to set a bit of a foundation for that conversation so that we can begin to talk and pray amongst ourselves together we may call some prayer meetings as a church have some congregational meetings maybe even call some fasting and prayers we get into the fall uh, just, just to seek God's face together so that we chart a course. But it's important that, that we chart that course. You know, some people say, well, plans aren't spiritual. Well, actually it says that, that uh, when we commit our plans to the Lord in, in Proverbs, it says that He will cause them to succeed, which implies that plans are important. Sometimes plans, we don't want to plan because we're afraid that we might miss God and make a mistake. But if we do it humbly and we say, Lord, we're open to your leading and you're adjusting as we take steps of faith, he can lead. He can close doors, open other doors. Uh, But I do believe it's an act of discipleship and obedience to uh, to make plans. The other thing is that um, I see this as a continuation of our series on evangelism. And you may recall that we actually began the series on evangelism with the same text that we're going to start today with. And that's from Matthew chapter 28. We argued in our series that evangelism and mission and and, uh, discipleship are actually opposite sides of the same coin. And uh, just to review that, we said that evangelism was that aspect of the church's mission, which endeavors to offer every person the opportunity to encounter and embrace the good news of Jesus. That's your mission. That's my mission. That's our mission is is where we are is to offer every person the opportunity to embrace and counter the good news of Jesus. And so we have felt as a church leadership that we need to actually do it, not just talk about it. So that we're actually going to have services this summer where we're just going to say, we're going to have church in the park, and we're just going to go and worship there, and uh, we want to go over to Grandview Park. We're checking into permits and sound and stuff like that, and just go and be good news and have a picnic, feed people, maybe have chili. Uh, get Gordy going, you know, I know they're used to doing it Tuesday night, maybe have chili on t- Sunday morning and some hot dogs and veggie dogs, of course, gotta have that. Um, so uh, I think that'll be fun. I don't know about you, but I think it'd be fun to do that. Pray for good weather and, uh, and go for it. So, you know, I, there, there's more to evangelism than that. I understand that, but I think sometimes by taking purposeful action like that, it speaks volumes. Secondly, we said that discipleship is that aspect of the church's mission which helps people mature, develop, and thrive as as fully devoted followers of Jesus. In other words, when people embrace the good news, we don't don't leave them to fend for themselves. Oh, I'm glad you prayed the sinner's prayer, or I'm glad you got baptized, or whatever. But we, we, we are focused and intentional about helping these... Jesus said, if you love me, feed my lambs. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, take care of my sheep. That's discipleship. He wasn't just saying that to Peter. That's a call to the whole church, right? Pretty quiet in here, right? Amen. Thank you. Now, if Robbie was here, he'd say, "A woman." All right? I kind of missed that today. Robbie had to work. <laughs> And so this means discipling, uh, helping people mature, anyone who's hungry, anyone who's open. Children, youth, all ages, all ethnicities, all social and economic groups, cultures and subcultures. It doesn't matter. Jesus said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, right? So, what are the hazards if we don't do that? Remember we said that these are two sides of the same coin, But if we don't make disciples, what's the danger? You get a Rwanda, where you get Christians, nominal Hutus, slaughtering Tutsis, because of priorities that came before the kingdom of God. Nominal Christians. And you, you read through church history the number of nominal Christians who killed in the name of Christ. That's what happens when you don't make disciples. Look at the Crusades. What were the Crusades? The Crusades were Norse Christians. They were Viking Christians who were not fully discipled. And so they became Christians, but they had the sword and the shield, and they put a cross on it. Let's kill a few people in the name of God. Let's kill some Muslims. Let's take back the Holy Land. That's why you had residential schools. We did it in the name of God. That's a lack of discipleship. Bad things happen when we don't make disciples. Amen. It's getting really quiet in here. <laughs> so, so Jesus is quite concerned about this. Um, furthermore, evangelism without discipleship is extremely inefficient. It's, I, I used to tell my youth in Calgary... Um, this analogy. Jesus has called us to make disciples of all nations. What if we took BC Place? We rented it every night. And, pl- and how many does it seat? Something like 60, 70,000? Wade knows. Yeah, about 60, 70,000, right? 50? And if we do the floor? Yeah, probably another couple thousand, right, on the floor, at least? So let's imagine that we rented that and booked it every night and had a Billy Graham revival every night, where we packed it full of a di- and it was a different 70,000, let's just say 70,000, we put 70,000 in that stadium and preached to a different crowd every night, how long would it take us to win the world? If it was a different crowd every night, how long would it take us to reach the... Depends on what they did with it. Like how they, Depends on how the people responded. Good point. Yeah. And whether they were disciples <laughs> or not. Yeah. But if you... If, if you took away the idea of whether they actually responded to Christ, but they just heard the gospel, how long would it take for every person in the, in the world to hear the gospel? As as you know how long it is? It would take 400 years. You wouldn't even get it done in our lifetime. A different crowd every night. Now, I used to tell my youth this in Calgary, and I, I think it started getting through to them, and I'll, give you, I'll tell you why in a minute. I say, what if you and I, what if just one of us, not all of us, just one of us in this church, not all the churches in Vancouver, not all the churches in Canada or the world, but just one person, Bob or, or Dawson, or Christine, what if just one of us took one person this year and we, we led somebody to Christ, we taught them how to know God in prayer and in the scriptures, we taught them how to deal with their doubts and how to deal with temptation, and we told them how to be part of a local church community and how to tithe and how to give and how to, how to, how to witness to other people. What if we took one year and we poured our life into somebody and taught them how to do that? How many disciples would you have at the end of one year? You'd have one plus one yourself, hopefully, right? So that's two. Now, the question is, is is at the end of one year, now I know this is highly hypothetical, but think about this. If at the end of one year you did the same thing with somebody else and that person you had disciple did the same thing with one other person, how many would you have at the end of two years? Four. Okay, if you kept doing that, how long would it take you to disciple? Not just preach the gospel to, not just let everybody have a chance to hear, but disciple the whole world. How long would it take for that to occur? Huh? Sixty years. Good guess. You know how long? Thirty-three years. I've always, whenever I shared that story, and I did this, I did the math again the other day. Whenever I share that story, it always baffles me that that is exactly the life's age span that Jesus was—thirty-three years. And and if you don't believe me, um, look at this. I got a. Pardon my my Excel. Can you just move it forward, Susan, for me? Uh, Pardon my Excel skills here. Uh, Are we frozen? There we go. So, So here's the first 10 years. After one year, you have two. Two, you have four. You see that little numerical scale on the side. After three years, eight, 16, 32. After five years, you'd have 32 disciples. How many church plants today, if you planted a church after five years, you had 32 people, people would say you're successful? Not very many. That's usually regarded as a failure if you only got 32 people. A guy named Jay Pathick did this in the States. He left Cincinnati Vineyard, had a great youth group, went and disappeared into, me- into Metro Denver. Disappeared doing this. Everybody's saying, you're a loser, you know, what are you doing, blah, 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 blah. All of a sudden, it hit geometric growth. Now he's the most wanted speaker on the circuit. We're a bunch of hypocrites. Um, Usually, if you plant a church after five years, you're regarded as a failure if you only have 32. But look what happens. After about six, seven years, it starts hitting geometric. Seven, uh, eight, nine, by... Ten years, it's at 1,024. And just for fun, I just I, I took the next decade. Look what happens here. Again, it's kind of, it seems kind of slow uh, uh, per capita as you start. But then as you move along, by the time 16 years has come along, you're at 65,000. All right? And then the third decade, look at how it grows. Right? And then the last three years, 2,000,000,000. 32, 4 billion. At 33, you pass the 7 billion mark, which is about where we're at, right, in the world today. Um, now, I know, I know, I know. It's just an example. But the point is this. It seems it, 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 it's, it won't work. Can anyone guess why? Not everybody does Because it's dependent on our obedience. Exactly. Good answer. The other factor, of course, is not everybody's going to respond to the gospel. We know that. The other factor, I think, is that it does take longer than a year, usually, to make a good disciple. It It takes two to three years, I think. I think Jesus taught us that. But, folks, hello, I'm talking about just one of us doing that. That would be the result. What if every one of us did that? What if every Christian? How many Christians are there in the world today? Something like 2 billion Christians, right? 3 billion. Now, I know a lot of them are nominal, but there are hundreds of millions of real Christians in the world today. Hundreds of millions. What if each one of us believed this and lived this and walked this out? Now I taught my youth group this in Calgary, and we saw some things happen, I'll I'll share in a minute, but there's a a couple of other factors that came with this, is that uh, in order for it to work, not only what must we make disciples, but we must make disciples who make disciples, you know what I mean, we can't make mules, sorry that sounds (laughs) crass, we can't make disciples that don't reproduce, Right? We, we, need, we make disciples who make disciples. Now, the good news is, and Ed Hurd, who's a pretty smart guy, pretty credible guy, put on his Facebook this week an interesting stat. He said, a person who has been discipled is 7.3 times, I don't know where the point three comes from, but is 7.3 times more likely to disciple another person. I'm going to say that again. A person who has been discipled is 7.3 times more likely to disciple another person. So there is a domino effect when you and I choose to make disciples. But there's another important assumption we need to make, and that is it is critical for us to be disciples ourselves. You cannot make a disciple if you're not a disciple. So for the remainder of this message, I want to focus on what is a disciple and ask ourselves, am I truly a disciple of Jesus? So, our text is Matthew 28, and I think in this text it it gives us a little bit of an overview of what a disciple is, right? It's inherent in in the text. And again, I'm stuck, Susan, so I don't know, maybe the battery's starting to die on this because it's not responding that well. So if you can move that forward for me, thank you. Let's read the text, I'll read it, and then we'll we'll work our way through it a little bit. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I think one of those was Thomas, right? (laughs) Verse 18, then Jesus came to them and, and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Wow. Let's, let's, wa- let's walk through this a little bit. First of all, it says they worshipped him, in some, but some doubted. Now, I, I, I get this feeling that like it's pretty hard to deny that this, this Jesus, you know, especially if you're allowed to put your hand in his scars, it's pretty hard to doubt that he's alive, so... So what was the doubt about? And, and, and I, I don't have time to, to interact with you a lot on this, but I want to throw this out. And it's kind of in response a little bit to what Alec was talking about. What was the doubt about? Well, here's this guy who is has shown that he is worthy of worship. But you, who are the people, who, what is the ethnicity of the people who are worshiping him, but some are doubting What's their ethnicity? And what's Jewish view on on God? What are they called? They're monotheists, right? They believe in one God. So they're going, here's a guy who's evidently God. He's worthy of worship. But wait a minute. My Jewish mind is going, but we're monotheists. And in the early church, it took them a while. They began to teach the Trinity, the triune nature of God, that God is, is... Uh, The the one in whom we have the ground of our being is a community with whom he is one with at least two others that are exactly like him in power and and, and omnipresence and and glory. That they've been in this community from all eternity. God is not a solitary being up there. And so they began to wrestle with this. And so in the Jewish mind, they're going, how do I worship Jesus but not Deny my faith. There's that wrestle that's going on. And so uh, they worshipped him, but some doubted. But Jesus comes and he assures them. And what does he say? He says, you're right on. You're not wrong to worship me. Either he's a crazy lunatic, or he is who he said he was. Either he is God who became a human being, or he's just the craziest idiot that ever lived. That's our option. And he says in verse 18, then he came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm the boss. That's basically what he's saying. I'm in charge. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus... Uh, He he, implicitly gives the first definition of a disciple. A disciple is one who says, the orbit of my life is no longer me or anything else except Jesus Christ. Jesus is now the center and the orbit around which my life revolves. I like to use the analogy of a planet and the sun. And the planets revolve around the sun. And it's like all of us in our lives, we have some kind of orbit. There's some center-defining principle and force and factor and value in our life. And when you become a disciple, you're saying, it's Jesus. You're pulled out of your own orbit into an orbit around Christ. He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He calls the shots. I may get it wrong. I may make mistakes. I may fall down and have to get up again. But He calls the shots. Jesus is Lord. Lord. So, he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. That that phrase literally is baptize them into the name of the Father. Into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's that trinity again. Baptize them into the triune God. Baptize them into a family. Their identity now becomes primarily in Christ. They're no longer ethnicity. My identity is no longer Lagore. My primary identity is no longer French Canadian. You didn't know I was French Canadian, eh? I am French Canadian from Huguenot background. Right? <laughs> hey. Um, my, my primary identity is no longer Pentecostal or Vineyard. My primary identity is in Christ. It's not First Nations. Amen. It's not Muslim. It's not ethnicity. Now, I'm not saying culture isn't important, but our primary identity is now, as Paul said, we are part of the whole family of which the whole family in heaven and earth is named the name of God, right? That's right. That's who we are. So, So our primary identity is in Christ, and that happens in baptism. That's what you're saying when you get baptized. Is my primary identity as I belong to Christ. It's, it's even more primary than my relationship with my own immediate family. Is the relationship I have with you in Christ. That is the teaching of the New Testament. That's pretty radical. Right? And it has incredible implications in how we do church. And how we be a community together. How we are. That's why Jesus said some of those radical things about family. And, and, you know, family loyalties. And And sometimes Scripture seems to contradict itself because on one hand, he talks about loving your spouse, loving your husband, taking care of your kids, and yet other times he says, unless you hate your father and mother. You know, what is that? Well, he's talking about your primary loyalties. Your primary loyalty. Your orbit. What are you revolving around? And teaching them to obey everything I observe everything I've commanded, teaching them to observe everything I've given you. And behold, I am with you always. You're not doing this on your own. This is not some little do-it-yourself DIY project discipleship. I'm there. I'm doing it. I'm at work. And prayer, because the greatest thing I ever did when I've ever discipled anybody, or they've done for me when I've been discipled, is they prayed for me. Because Jesus is the discipler. Jesus is the one who's doing the work. But we partner with Him in that work. So in summary, then, we can say this. Move it on, Susan. Move it on. Woo-hoo. Hyundai. Okay, here we go. A disciple is one who has made Jesus Lord of their life, has made him their primary identity through baptism and endeavors to worship God in all areas of their life. Is, am, am, am I putting the bar too high here, folks? Is somebody saying, well, Gordy, you're not being very seeker-friendly? You know, well, Jesus was incredibly seeker-friendly. He pursued the lost with great passion, but when, he, when it came to discipleship, he didn't pull any punches. He sometimes had to let people go away because they weren't ready for what being a disciple is, right? So if the first thing is... is They've made Jesus Lord of their life. They've made Him their primary identity through baptism. And they endeavor to worship God in all areas of their life. Secondly, moving it right along. Susan, thank you. Thanks, Dean. They have joined themselves to Christ's church and community where they are known and accountable for their discipleship. In other words, who knows? Who, Who knows about how your marriage is doing? How your family life is doing? How your thought life is doing? Other than God. And sometimes maybe God doesn't know. Huh? I'm being facetious, but I'm saying that we are only open with God to the degree we're open with others. It's, it's, a, it's a law. It's a rule. So part of discipleship is, is, is a life of transparency and a life of openness. Not with the whole world, but with people that we are in accountability with. People that we're walking with. Who, who, who watch over us in love. Right? And then finally, a disciple is engaged in Christ's mission to the world. And so there's this Trinitarian aspect that we've been, you know, uh, this is going to start showing up in your dreams, this one. Uh, Worship, community, mission. These three aspects are are happening in the life. John Wimber gave uh, what he called five indicators of of a disciple. And they seem so basic. Moving it on, uh, there we go. Demonstrated by... Uh, a life of service, uh, faithful attendance. This is Wimber's five demonstrations of a disciple. Can you just move it on, Susan? Thanks. Uh, faithful service, um, a faithful giving, biblically based beliefs, uh, orthopraxy, or orthodoxy, and orthopraxy is becoming like Jesus. So let me just let me just review those: life of service. Uh, faithful attendance seems so basic, right? When I, when I played basketball, they said, you've got to get the fundamentals. If you're going to play basketball well, dribble the ball, pass the ball, shoot the ball. And those three things, dribble, pass, shoot. They, they, they called it the triple threat position that you would work on, that whenever you had the ball, there was, there was a triple threat. You could either drive the ball, you could either pass the ball, or you could shoot the ball. There's a triple threat. And, they, and they, they, they drill this fundamental in you. And these are fundamentals. They seem so basic. But let me tell you something. If you never show up at church, you're not a disciple. If you're never gathering in obedience to, to worship corporately, don't say you're a disciple. We love you. We're not going to condemn you. But we have to call the shots as they are. We have to call them as Jesus called them, right? Faithful attendance. Do you know that uh, with regards to giving you know how our church survives? Because of disciples. Disciples who, with their tithes and offerings, support the local church. If it wasn't for disciples, we would not exist as a church. But often the 80-20% rule works with giving as it does with service. Is often uh, 20% of the people su- support 80% of the churches financially. 20% of the church's uh, people uh, do 80% of the church's work. That, that it's often disciples and throughout church history this has always been that tension now what about people that don't we say well you don't belong get in or get out no in the early church they had this thing called catechumens and pre-catechumens in other words they had people who were walking alongside disciples and saying hey I'm I'm interested in this I don't know if I'm ready for this giving thing and I don't I don't know if I'm ready to make that kind of commitment but I'm intrigued by the kind of life that you've got and what God's doing among you can I walk with you for a while and, you know, maybe I'm living with a common law partner or, you know, with a gay lover or whatever, but I, I, I'm, I'm curious about this. And the church would say, said, come on in. Come and watch. Come and be a part of us. And, and, and often they would participate in, in various aspects of the church. But they distinguished between a disciple, a catechumen, and a pre-catechumen. It was just a natural way of, of being faithful to the scriptures. Now, are you okay for me talking like that? It's pretty straightforward, eh? So then, biblically-based beliefs. In other words, looking at the story and being consistent with the story is important. What you believe about who God is and who you are is important because it affects what you do. If your idea of God is Trinitarian, that God is a community, then you're going to be a relational person. You're going to be a social person because God is a social God. Now, I don't like that because I'm an introvert and I'd rather be alone. Get me just uh, be a hermit, get me a monastery somewhere. I would be the happiest person on earth. And I say, no, you wouldn't. It's true. It's probably true. She's right. I, th- you know, but but you think sometimes you think that as an introvert, right? But God's a social God, and so I know that if I'm going to be like God, then I need to be relational. I need to be outgoing. I need to be friendly, right? Sorry, Peter. It's true. <laughs> he looked really upset about that. <laughs> so. He is a very friendly guy of course so becoming like Jesus is you know did we miss anything Wimber said let's see did we miss anything okay becoming like Jesus right it's kind of like this relationship with Christ being mentored to become like him but not like him where he was this man walking around with a robe and sandals back in in 2000 years ago but where he mentors you to live your life the way he would live it if he were you In other words, you're going to be you. You're not going to be some rabbi from 2,000 years ago, some mystic. He's going to make you who you were made to be. That's what discipleship is. You're being freed up to be what God created you to be. He frees you. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you will be my disciple, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. All right? So how are disciples made? Well, let's look at some examples. The first example is Jesus Uh, How did he make disciples? There's a a fellow named Robert Coleman, came out with a book a few years ago called The Master's Plan of Evangelism. And he came out with this the, the eight steps that Jesus used in the discipleship process, which I have coined the discipleship loop. And I'll explain why as we go through this. But the first step in discipling was the call, where Jesus... Would, would, would call people. And I think there's something about discipleship. I think we dumb the church down too much. I think there's something where we need to say, you know, this costs you something. This is going to cost you something. You know, we, we get to, to where we're trying to, and, and sometimes I do this, and I, and I need to repent of it, but we make it too easy. Jesus pulled no punches. This is going to cost you everything. You want to be a follower of Jesus? You want to be a leader? You want to be a follower in Christ's church? You want to be a servant? You want to, you want to follow the way of the cross? I mean, Stephen Karen sang about it this morning. It's going to cost you everything. Every other loyalty must bow to this one loyalty of following Christ and, and his cause, his mission, and his church, right? So he would call, and then he, it says that he called his disciples to be with him. So in other words, there was this um, uh, relational aspect. Discipleship happens in relationship, not in a classroom, not in this setting. Now, I'm not saying this isn't part of discipleship, but without relationship, there is no discipleship. So he called them, it says, first to be with him. And, and I've given Dean a passage in a couple of weeks where, you know, we often miss this, that the first interactions that Jesus had with his disciples they were hanging out they were hanging out at his house he said where do you live? he said come and see and they hung out for the day so there's the impact of a life life on life and people you know catch what you're doing they, they, they catch the spirit of you know what you say and how you say it when you're, when you're under pressure or when you're angry or when something hurts you they, they see that, that you're teaching way more and you can imagine, just by being together with someone. Then there was the consecration, I already mentioned that, where he said, count the cost. And then impartation. Jesus spent a lot of time, that said, teaching his disciples. He ta- taught them about the Father. He taught them about the Holy Spirit. He, he taught them about their mission and what they were going to be doing. Now this is where often we get stuck in the church. And I've had a restlessness, and I've been talking to our leadership team about it, because there's a restlessness in me that I've been feeling for some time. And I would say that I've nailed it down to this bottleneck that we have in the church. The way that we've set up church is we get stuck at this point. But Jesus goes on, and he demonstrated what he taught. Okay, so he said, okay, you know, the Father heals, and he raises the dead, and he heals the sick. Now watch. And he demonstrated This is how you treat a woman who society is called an outcast. And she's ceremonially unclean, and she's broken all the rules and busted through the crowd, and she's touched the hem of my garment. This is how you treat somebody like that, that the society says is marginalized. He demonstrated how to heal the sick. He demonstrated how to treat the outcast and the broken and the poor and the oppressed. He demonstrated. Then he delegated. Coleman talks about how that Jesus then said, okay, now in this, in this discipleship loop, I believe that people need to learn by trying it themselves. We call this practice, right? Praxis. And then supervision. Remember he sent the disciples out to preach and they healed the sick and cast out demons and they came back and they said, Lord, even the demons... Even the demons are subject to us. Woohoo! And they're, they're, they're giving each other high fives as they come back. And, and Jesus says, uh, you guys, you're, 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 you're in danger of missing what this is all about. He said, I saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. That's not a big deal. He said, don't rejoice the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Keep your priority." So he would supervise. He would correct. He would coach. This was coaching. Right? And then multiplication, where how, what did the discipleship process, how did it end? He left. I, I love in Luke where it talks about where he lifted his hand and he blessed them. It says he first blessed them and then he left. And I, and I was reading that, I told Dawson, I was reading that this week and Jesus just got me. I said, Lord, that's not fair. You, you made disciples and you left. I make disciples and they leave. That's not fair. I was thinking about, you know, Patrick and, and Marcus, just wonderful young, young leaders we've had and, and a bunch of young leaders we have that could be gone in a year. And I'm going, that's not fair. It's my turn to leave, right? <laughs> Jesus said, don't worry, you'll leave. You'll be dead in about 30 years, so don't worry. <laughs> yeah. The fact of the matter is we're all going to be gone. None of us are, are, are permanent, right? We're all very temporary. The issue is, we, you know what I hear God saying to us? Opportunity, window of time, harvest is right. If you don't bring in the harvest, what happens? It rots. Yeah. It gets rotten. We have a harvest in this city. And God is saying, opportunity is here. Will you bring it in? Right? And then lastly, they, they begin to call. The, and you see John and Peter repeating the same loop that Jesus took them through. And what happens is this bottleneck occurs right in this area, and uh, the church um, had a way of dealing with this bottleneck, the early church. In in Acts chapter 2, it says, those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, what do you do if you have about 120, right? I think that's about what they had at that time, about 120 disciples, what do you do if God all of a sudden dumps 3,000 babies on your doorstep? What do you do? Yeah, and you need to be organized. You better be organized. I'm sorry, I know that doesn't sound like a very spiritual word to some of you mystics. But there was two guys who are both heroes of mine from the 1600s, One guy's name was George Whitfield. Ever hear of George Whitfield? This guy would preach in an open field, and 30,000 people would would listen to him. God would supernaturally carry his voice, and people would fall down under the power as this young man. He was 20 years old, 20 years old, and England was just struck by the spiritual awakening. He came to America. He would preach. People would listen five miles away, and they could hear his voice. God would supernaturally propel his voice. But there was another guy named John Wesley who was also a uh, uh, contemporary of George Whitfield, Short little guy, I've seen John Wesley's suit because they have it in a little display in London at a little museum. and his, John Wesley must have been about this tall. Well, they were all shorter back then. I wish I'd have lived back then. I would have had a much higher sense of self-esteem. And Wesley, and Wesley, uh, and Wesley uh, he, he, had, he was a similar preacher, but he wasn't as eloquent as George Whitefield. But he, he had this phrase, I'm going to organize to beat the devil. And what he did was, similar to the early church. I'll, 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 let me look at the early church, and then I'll show you what West, how Wesley applied this. In the early church, they had 3,000 people that landed on their doorstep who were hungry disciples. Hungry Hunger Games, right? They're just, ah, let's eat.
1: This is the real Hunger
0: Games, right? And, 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 and these guys ended up on their doorstep. Okay, I'm starting to feel kind of youth pastor okay? Just bear with me. They show up on their doorstep, and they say, hi, is your name Peter? Yes, my name is Peter. I hear you spend a lot of time with Jesus. Yes, I did. You better feed me, or I'm going to kill you, right? That's basically, I mean, they were hungry, you know? You better disciple me, or I'll be dangerous, right? So, so, uh, so these, these disciples said, to feed us. And, you know, remember they'd come from all over the world, so they had to pile into people's houses and sleep on the floor. And I mean, it was just a mess, right? But, but they were getting discipled. And it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So what happened was, as Peter would get up and preach, and, and somebody would say, well, as they're walking away from church, they'd go, well, yeah, but what, is, what does that mean about giving God all my money? He told us about the rich young ruler. Does that mean I have to give my house away? What is, how do I work out this business of discipleship with my money? And, and, and what is this tithe? What, what, what's that about? And what about loving the poor and... How do I work that out? How does that, what does that look like where I live? And, and uh, somebody said, well, why don't you come over? Why, why don't we have a, a, another time where we can get together and talk about what Peter talked about and just rustle and chew on it. And they said, but I don't have any time. I have to get up and go to work at 6 a.m. And I got kids, and I, I don't have any time. And then somebody had a bright idea. We have to eat. We have to eat anyway. Well, why don't you come over for dinner? We'll eat. I got a lot of stuff going on. But over the mealtime, oh, wait a minute. Jesus said that with the new way of worship, meal is going to be the center. So let's break bread. Let's talk about the sermon. Let's pray for each other and then go home. And they started doing that. And the meal became the center of worship and they broke bread and remember what Christ had done and became part of the story. And I remember, you know, thinking about this in Calgary and there was about five or six guys that I said, let's meet once a week Let's have breakfast. I think we had the Denny's or something like that. I'm surprised <laughs> I've still survived. So, but anyway, every, every week, about 6 a.m., I met with about six guys for about three years. And every day, we'd get together. Every time we met, I, we would just go around the circle, talk about our week, what we were struggling with, sin, temptation, joys, sorrows. Over breakfast, each would take turn, and at the end of the meal, we then take a few minutes pray for each other, and then we're on our day. I was thinking about this not too long ago. Every one of those guys, there's four of them, that are now probably conglomerate, conservatively pastoring 2,000 people in the Calgary area. They're they're pastors of churches today. Another one's an elder called an intercessory prayer elder in one of the larger uh, churches in the city. And one of them led, while I was still there, led a young man to Christ at the University of Calgary outreach. And in the first uh, first time he took a discipleship course, he heard about tithing and he said, well, I'm trying to get a job at IBM. And he made a deal with God. He said, God, if you get me this job with IBM, I'm going to tithe. I'm going to give you the first 10% of my income but he said, the first paycheck, I'm going to give you everything. So he did. God gave him the job. He began to work for IBM. Gave God the first paycheck. He began to tithe. He's today a multimillionaire. He works, he's actually on the board of Broadway over here. That sense of multiplication, it's unbelievable. I look. I, the thing is, is at the time you go, oh, 6 a.m., oh, it just feels like nothing's happening, you know, like you feel like, what are we doing? I remember that, I remember feeling that, saying, Lord, we're nuts, what are we doing, right? So, so how did Wesley do this? Well, Wesley, he, he had a little system called the Society's Bands and Classes, and so a society was like a group like this, but we were neighborhood-based, it'd be like Commercial drive, it would be like parish-based. Let's imagine that there was a parish from Knight Street over to, um, say, Nanaimo and from Hastings, maybe the Harbor, to Broadway. Let's say that's a parish. So anybody in that parish would become part of a society. It'd usually be a group of about maybe 100 people, 200 people in, in that. But we all know that that's too big to be known already, even though it's not a big church, but it's too big to be known. So he formed what was called classes, and this, these were like home groups. They were co-ed, men, women, children, young people, who would eat together, talk about the sermon, chew on the word together. And then within those classes, he had what was called bands. Now, it's not worship bands. Uh, bands were, were, were same, where, where men would meet with men, like the guys I was talking about on a Thursday morning, Five, four, five, six guys would meet together, and they would have questions They would meet at, here's the rules they had. Now, Wesley was very disciplined. We'd meet once a week. Here's the rule. Be on time. Whoa, that'd be radical. Whoa. Begin on time. That's radical. With singing or prayer. End on time. That's really radical. Uh, And then to speak in order, freely, plainly, the true state of our souls with faults, committed in thought, word, or deed, and the temptations we've had. And so they'd go around the circle and they'd ask these questions. What known sins have you committed since our last meeting? So they meet once a week, right, these guys. What temptations have you met with? How are you delivered? And what have you thought, said, or done of which you doubt whether it be sin or not? Now, how many know that's transparency? Right? And and, uh, I, I was listening on the radio, CBC. Insight sometimes comes from CBC. This commentator was talking about some political scandal that was going on this week. He said, you cannot have accountability without transparency. And that's why James said, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Right? So modern day examples. And we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. Uh there's so many that I could give where, where people are finding ways to go beyond impartation to delegation and, and, uh, and uh, supervision. Uh, Martin Bowman, a friend of mine from the Bern Vineyard in Switzerland, has had for a long time one of the largest evangelical churches in Europe. The, it, it's the Bern Vineyard. Originally, it was a charismatic independent church, now, around 1500 for Europe, that's mega church. I know it's not for North America necessarily, but for Europe, it's, it's massive. But he has just moved to Berlin, and his vision in Berlin is, to, is what he calls 100 by 100. What that means is that instead of a church growing to 1,500 he, or 10,000, he wants to see 100 neighborhood-type churches between 50 to 100 throughout the whole city. And the reason, and, and the idea is that, is that you move into a neighborhood with people you love dearly, that you love, do life together. You have meals, barbecues, you invite friends in the neighborhood over, you start a seat course, an alpha course, the Vineyard Alpha, uh, have block parties, uh, you start a block watch. You have an emergency preparation program in your neighborhood as as a group of Christians, you just start loving your neighbors, just reaching out to them. And you become an intentional missional community. Now imagine Vancouver with hundreds of neighborhoods like that. With with Christians that are present in the neighborhood. That's where I'd like us to go. I don't know if you want to go there. I'm I'm not gonna force anybody to go anywhere. And this is gonna take but I've had this sitting in me for years. This, this, this vision. And when Martin shared what he was doing in Berlin, I went, that's it. That's exact. I'm waiting. Somebody. Here's the thing. If you have 10,000 people in a mega church compared to 100 little churches that have 100 people each, how many know it's the same amount of people? But the statistics show that the the rate of evangelism is geometrically higher with the smaller communities just being working their way through the city. And I think there's there's a number of reasons for that. But that's our that's our desire and our, our vision that, that I'd like us to talk about. I'm I'm I want to provoke you today. I wanna I want you to talk about this and and we're gonna we're gonna have some, you know, we're gonna talk about this more and what some of the implications of that are. Uh, I think that if we're going to do it as a leadership team, we've talked about reducing the time in this service so that this small group, large group thing are actually part of the same thing, and they're and they're and they're interactive. But they take uh, we give room for that discipleship loop to occur. So in closing, here's the reflection question I want to ask us, and let's bring it to our heart now. There is no accountability without transparency. In what context of my week am I known and transparent with others about my discipleship? Now, being open and transparent with your husband or wife is good, but who are you open and transparent with about how you treat your husband or wife? Right? So, in other words, beyond just, you know, thinking baptism into the family, baptism into the... the, the uh, uh, the priority, the, the identity, the primary identity that we have. So, um, in, in, in just a couple of thoughts, and I put some notes there just on your sheets just to, to reflect on. Is that, uh, first of all, there's, the, the difference between Jesus and us is we're, disi- we're making disciples of Jesus, not of ourselves. I think some cults and and, and spiritual abuse has happened where churches all of a sudden try to make you a disciple of them. And they take authority and leadership that doesn't belong to them. So always remember that it's disciples of Jesus. And we're just servants of that process. Secondly, we need each other for discipleship. And it's a corporate thing. Remember we've said it takes a village to raise a child? It takes a village to make a disciple. Because there's certain things that I'm strong at that that, that, that may help you, but there's, there's things that other people may have strengths that I don't have that, that you'll need. So we, it's a community. And, and sometimes it's seasons of life where at, at a particular season in your life, you're going to need somebody that's a good parent to disciple you in parenting, right? Maybe that's not going to be the issue 10 years later. So it, 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 there's seasons. It's a lifelong journey, You never graduate from discipleship. Sorry, YWAM, you don't. You never graduate. I I mean, I I still am a disciple when I'm 95 years old walking around with no teeth saying, bless the Lord. Right? What scares me is that I could have a good life up to 90 years of age and not finish well. That scares me. That means every day I gotta say, I'm gonna take up my cross, and I'm gonna follow. <sighs> Come on, are you all right? Good. Let's pray. I want you to talk about this. Let's let's interact about it. Let's let's push back. I want you to push back. Say, well, Gordy, what about this? I don't have any more time. I'm already up to my eyeballs and stuff. I don't. I can't have another meeting. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's a good question. I think Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we have to say, Lord, how do we do this? And be obedient. Okay? Maybe we have to make this service shorter. Maybe we met for an hour and a half and then spilled into homes for lunchtime. All right, after church. And if you can't do it after lunch because your kids are begged, then maybe another night in the week or... Maybe we integrate our men's and women's groups and those things, and work on that. I mean, there's all there's life that I don't want to interfere with. There's organic life happening already to some degree in our church that I don't want to I don't want to mess up. So we're we're not we're not coming with a heavy hand and saying mm-hmm. it, it, we're just saying, Lord, lead us and show us how to how to how to get there. So Lord, would you help us, Jesus? Uh, I I just. Confess. I, just, I talked about being transparency. I just confess. I'm very restless, uh, to the point of suffering depression and just despair. Lord, I, I I just don't want to preach anymore and and not find ways to live out what we're talking about in in making disciples. I just don't want to do that anymore. I'm just tired of it. I need I need you to help me and help us. We're not ungrateful for this time. I'm I'm. I know that you do wonderful things here. But it's just, there's, there's still another step. There's a missing ingredient, Lord, that we're needing you to help us and show us and, and lead us forward as we... I'm thinking of the fall, where just some new initiatives are going to happen that, that will respond to this. Uh, uh, would you just, just show us, Lord? Just lead us by your Spirit. Pray for people to be baptized this year. Lord, we said that our goal this year is 12 new disciples. I pray for 12 baptisms this year. Um, that will, people that will be added to the church. And many more conversations that are on their way to Jesus. Just that will be happening in our neighborhoods, with our workmates, in our school. Parents, talking to parents. and On the playground. Yeah. We got about five minutes before kids pick up. This is the ministry time today. Talk to each other. Turn to somebody and, and say, this is what I heard. Uh, and and uh, if you need to, pray for each other. And, uh, and then when you're done, you're blessed to go. Have a great week.